I want them to be comfortable with what they are calling it. And so I can tell you that most patients want to continue calling it seizures because they didn't wake up that morning and decide to go to a birthday party or have an event that day. Hello and welcome to Brain Boy Neurology. I'm your host, Jamie Holloman. Let's get started. Welcome to Brain Boy Neurology, a podcast where we explore clinical neurology through discussions with experts in the field. Today is an exciting episode because we are joined by our first ever co-host, Jamie Maffa. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks. Happy to be here. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Uh, I am a MD-PhD student at Washington University School of Medicine, and I'm currently working towards my PhD in neuroscience. Awesome. Well, I'm incredibly happy to have you with us, and thanks so much for producing these episodes. And so our topic today is non-epileptic seizures. To give a little bit of a background, non-epileptic seizures is a name for a disorder that causes intermittent episodes of shaking, usually with loss of consciousness. This disorder is different than epilepsy, which is a common neurological illness that also causes shaking. Epileptic seizures are caused by synchronized hyperactivity in specific areas of the brain. If you took someone having an epileptic seizure and hooked them up to an EEG, you would see this synchronized hyperactivity within their brain waves. In contrast, non-epileptic seizures are not fully understood, but are not caused by this synchronized hyperactivity of brain waves. If you took someone having a non-epileptic seizure and hooked them up to an EEG, you would commonly see normal brainwave activity. We don't fully understand what causes non-epileptic seizures, but because they're not caused by the same thing as epilepsy, they don't respond to anti-epileptic seizure medications and are often difficult to treat. We see this disorder commonly in our neurological clinics. Some research studies estimate that as many as 25% of all patients referred to an epilepsy clinic will eventually receive a diagnosis of non-epileptic seizures. Because of lack of understanding and treatment for this patient group, they're often neglected and receive suboptimal care. I personally treated about a dozen non-epileptic seizure patients, and I always feel like I'm letting them down because of the lack of effective treatments within our current system. So I think today's conversation will be particularly helpful. And we've got a wonderful guest to, to take us through this topic. Jamie, can you tell us a little bit about today's guest? Absolutely. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Laura Strom. She is an epileptologist at the University of Colorado who specializes in the treatment of patients with non-epileptiform seizures. She went to medical school at Penn State University College of Medicine and completed her neurology residency and epilepsy fellowship at the University of Colorado. She is the head of the non-epileptic seizure clinic at the University of Colorado and is the primary investigator in an ongoing study for patients with non-epileptic seizures. Her clinic provides comprehensive neurologic and psychiatric treatment to patients with non-epileptic seizures and has treated more than 600 patients as of 2020. Awesome. We were incredibly lucky to have her. And Dr. Strom is particularly amazing for being able to handle being interviewed by two different Jamies at the same time. I didn't realize till partway into the interview how confusing that must have been for her. So thanks so much, Dr. Strom, for, for putting up with that. Uh, this episode is paired with episode nine, in which we talk with a patient living with non-epileptic seizures to gain insight into what it's like living with this condition. I highly recommend checking out that episode for a full view on the disorder. And without further ado, I give you the wonderful Dr. Laura Strom. I'm sitting here with Dr. Strom. Dr. Strom, thanks so much for joining us. Our topic today is non-epileptic seizures. 
Before we jump into a topic, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about your own career. What initially got you interested in neurology? It really was didn't gel for me until I had my first case of a woman with newly diagnosed Huntington disease. But we didn't know that. She showed up psychotic. Hmm. And um, she was having all these funny movements. And I was a psychiatry intern. So I went to my supervisor and said, something else is wrong with this lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> first of all, she was 50 having her first psychotic episode. So didn't really fit. And um, I was kind of stomped a little bit for that case and others um, saying, oh, you know, you're, you're using too medical a model. We need to, you know, look deeper than that. And you know, it turned out she had a neurological disorder and it needed to be treated. It, it wasn't me. I didn't discover anything. It would have been discovered quickly, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but that was what really excited me about neurology was that it was, you know, it was psychopathology on parade and you could test a reflex and figure out where in the brain it was happening. Yeah. So that's kind of why I, I switched to neurology and you know, frankly, once I went through neurology residency, that parade continued with epileptic patients because, you know, you talk about peeling back the layers. When someone's having a seizure, an epileptic seizure, you're just seeing raw behavior. And um, that really fascinated me and, and drove me to get a fellowship in epilepsy. So that's kind of my story in a nutshell. Fantastic. And so did you actually have to then switch from the psychiatry residency to then a neurology residency? I did. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Gotcha. I did. And it was, um, I not only had to do that, I had to go to a specific city because my husband was doing consulting work in Denver. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any choice. So I had to show up late to the game and say, will you take yeah. me? Yeah. Um, you know, which most neurology residences don't want to do, especially when someone's escaping from psychiatry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I say that tongue in cheek, but that's how a lot of neurologists look at it. They look at it as this big, you know, schism, this kind of uh, you're either one or you're the other. Mm. And, you know, I, I contend that Freud was wrong. He should not have, you know, taken psychiatry out of the realm of neurology because, mm. you know, see, it's going, and we'll talk more about that, going right back where it belongs at this point. Dr. Holloman, did you also ask me why I, why I got interested in functional neurological disorders, or is that the next question? Yeah. Oh, no, that's right. That was going to be my follow-up question. Yeah, what initially brought you to them? So I think on that background, it's probably pretty easy to see that I just have a psychiatric bent, mm-hmm. um, you know, more so than my other neurology uh, cohort. And what... What really compelled me was the conversation that you have to have with a person who's having non-epileptic seizures mm-hmm. when they're in the epilepsy monitoring unit. And I got tired of it. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, gee, um, good news. You don't have epilepsy. Mm-hmm. Gee, bad news. You have non-epileptic seizures. And oh, by the way, we can't do anything for you. Go find a psychiatrist. Yeah. I mean, obviously, that's not how I presented the, you know, to the patient, but how it felt to me, it felt to me because I could see their faces, I would tell them this, and, and they would have this look on their face, like the doctor's telling me I'm crazy. And you can tell you can look at their face, and you can see that's what they're thinking. And so I I developed early on um, a way of talking to patients um, that didn't elicit that response every time. Mm-hmm. It got famous with the neurology residents who used to come in and watch Dr. Strom give the talk. 
Yeah. Because it was it was a way of inviting them into the diagnosis, even though at that point I didn't have anything to offer them except explanation, and which I thought, you know, it's also important to give people a good explanation. But, you know, I think the thing that really drove me to decide that I wanted to do this full time is one, my hair's getting kind of white. <laughs> and this is a this is sort of a shift in what I do that is a little less um physically arduous than being an epilepsy doctor. Um, and also it really was a, you know, a way to bring full circle what I wanted to do, which is not only diagnose these people, but, but give them treatment because there isn't a lot of treatment for people with non-epileptic seizures. So. No. Yeah. And that, that makes total sense. And I echo the sentiment of feeling when you, you give that initial diagnosis of, of non-epileptic events, uh, that um, they you you do feel like the patient kind of is like oh this doctor's given up on me or this doctor is telling me I'm crazy and you can almost feel yeah. that patient physician uh, dynamic shifting and and so I'm incredibly excited to hear uh, the, the way that you approach that um, when we get into our patient case and when you um, for non epileptic events when you were sort of focusing on them a little bit more did you just sort of have to seek out the research and and uh, clinical experience on your own were there any sort of dedicated paths that, that were open to you at that time yeah that is a great question and the answer is we had nothing yeah. in you know i i really felt like i was saying you know nice to see you sucks to be you when i talked to patients because we not only do we not have any dedicated people did we then any dedicated people around here who were interested in taking care of the problem psychiatrists are actually afraid of it hmm. they they want to take care of a psychiatric issue when a person comes in their office and starts having a seizure they're calling 911 and you know shooting the patient out the door hmm. you know not my problem um, and I, I know that nobody consciously thinks that, but that, that's really what ends up happening. And that's the perception that the patient has. Mm -hmm. The patient says, the doctor is afraid of me. The doctor doesn't know what to do with me. And they think that about the neurologist too, um, often. And how do I know that? Well, I do nothing but take care of non-epileptic seizure patients. And the first few people who tell you that that's their experience, you think, mm, well, maybe that was their experience. After you've heard the 150th person tell you that, <laughs> yeah. you you really know. And then the clincher is this, um, Jamie, is that you we have video. <laughs> so we're doing EEGs and we have video. And I had a really smart, um, soon-to-be psychiatry resident come to me once and say, could we do a project where we watch and see what you know the interaction is? And uh -huh. I said, wow, that's ambitious. Yes, we can. And we started it and our hearts failed. We just had to stop because it was like watching a train wreck. I mean, there are some neurologists who do a fantastic job and there are others who do an absolutely abominable job. And then the, the clincher is that in between times, you may have to edit all of this out, by the way. <laughs> I'm a little on a soapbox here. I like it. The clincher is that you know, we saw the interactions between patients and the emergency room staff. And it was not, it was not always professional. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. And, you know, patients would tell me things like they gave me a sternal rub over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. and I've seen it, yeah. you know. So I, here's what I think. 
I think that psychiatrists and neurologists and emergency room doctors were all trained differently. We all have our own little bag of tricks that we use to take care of a patient. And most um, people who are taking care of physical health problems are not well-trained in the approach to the patient. And it's not their fault. And I think that they are confronted with a patient, then they say to themselves, I don't know what to do. And instead of saying, okay, what should we do next? They, they, just, want, they just want it to stop. And that's, that's my impression. And that's after four years of dedicating myself to taking care of patients with non-epileptic seizures. And I think, it's, I think it's, the correct, you know, it's the correct assumption at this point. It's not really even an assumption anymore. Um, so I kind of forgot where we started, uh, but, yeah. but that's, that's the way your question made me feel. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And I, I agree with everything you said. And I think it's, it's just, uh, it's crazy that we're at a situation too, where, uh, as, as we sort of were discussing in the pre-interview that, you know, it's, it's not like non-epileptic events are, are a rare condition. You know, it makes up sometimes more than 25% of an EMU patient population, more than a third of your epilepsy clinic population. And so the fact that um, as you and I have the, the same experience, and I would imagine a lot of neurologists do, of not having really good treatment options for like a fourth of your patient population, which is is a striking thing to, to say. So I, I definitely think you're you're on the right track there. And um, yeah. Or, tra- or training in the approach, frankly. Yeah. Which I think is a big deficit. I don't know if you saw it, but um, Dr. Perez out of MGH wrote a pretty nice um, discussion in uh, neurology clinical practice about what are we going to do about training our residents? You know, when I wrote a commentary on it, um, and I was asked to write a commentary on it, and I did. And I, we're, all, we're all saying the same thing. It's not the doctor's fault. They aren't trained. Mm. They aren't trained to do this. And so, you know, that's why I was excited about getting an invitation to do a podcast, because it's an opportunity to, you know, sound off a little bit about, you know, how awful this is for the patient, because I need to be their advocate. Um, but also to say, hey, let's do a better job. Let's do a better job of training people. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so I, I think that's a good place to transition. But before we do, I always like to ask my guests if they have a, a non-medical book recommendation for our audience. Oh, yeah, I do. Um, I, you, it's on the New York Times bestseller list and has been for quite some time. It's, um, it's uh, Bessel van, Kolk, van der Kolk's book, um, The Body Keeps the Score. Have you heard of it? You, you, you would be, you should read it, Jamie. It is absolutely amazing book. And I recommend it to every single patient. It's pretty high level. It talks a lot about anatomy, neuroanatomy. It's firmly grounded in, you know, how this, you know, these kinds of problems express themselves in the body. And I, I could be not quite right about this, but he is either born after World War II or like right at the end of World War II. And, you know, his, I think his father was in a concentration camp and, you know, trauma was his middle name growing up. So he has a, not only does he know a lot about it and what he's, what he says is very true. He, he has a background that uniquely qualifies him to speak on the topic. That's fantastic. I'll definitely look into it. Yeah. So that is, that is my highest recommendation. Um, Great. Well, at this point, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Jamie to, to take us through our patient case. Okay. 
Yeah. So I'm just going to read through this patient case and then we will uh, dive into the questions. So the patient case is um, Miss Minnesota is a 48 year old woman with a history of depression, head trauma, and seizures presenting for further evaluation of refractory seizures. The patient's seizures began when she was 22 years old after she was involved in a bus accident on the way to work. Her bus crashed into a motorcycle and she slammed her head against the seat in front of her. There was no loss of awareness. After the accident, she was admitted to an intensive care unit for a few days and was evaluated for traumatic brain injury. During the recovery period, it was difficult for her to walk. And because of a continuing lack of sensitivity in both legs, she underwent an EMG and nerve conduction study three months after the accident. The EMG results were normal. Four months after the accident, she began to experience events that she describes as seizures. These are characterized as sudden onset shaking of her arms and legs. She also has episodes where she stares off into the distance for a few minutes and is unresponsive to family members. She also reports occasionally getting lost on the way to work. She received a diagnosis of post-traumatic epilepsy and was previously treated with phenytoin, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine. Despite these medications, her spells continued. Because of the lack of response to the treatment, she was referred for further management. The patient's boyfriend is bedside to provide collateral. The report that the patient's seizure frequency varies and can occur as little as once a month and as most as multiple times per day. The seizures can last for a few hours at a time. Her seizures seem pre precipitated by stress, and recently, after a loved one passed away, her seizure frequency increased. Her seizures consist of bilateral upper and lower extremity shaking with a loss of consciousness. She denies any urinary incontinence or tongue biting. She denies any preceding aura. After the seizures finish, she usually returns to normal within a few minutes. So our first question to kind of get a broad view of this case of is, and I think you touched on this a little bit in the introduction, but what are non-epileptic episodic events? Okay. Well, you know, let me, let me ask a question and in fairness, um, Dr. Holliman had already asked me this. I, it sounds like at Washington University, you call them events. Yeah. And so we, it varies a little bit by provider, but we um, typically call them, yeah, non-epileptic episodic events, but certainly defer to you on, on the best way to, to refer to them. Well, I, I would love to just call that out for just a minute. Um, and the reason I didn't answer you in the email is I, I kind of wanted to talk about it. Most of my patients come to me and they're confused because they were told for seven years they had seizures and then they were told they didn't have seizures. And they say, what should I call them? I've always called them seizures. I don't know. And they, they're upset. So that's one of the sources of angst in a patient is, wait a minute, I had this thing and now I have this other thing. And what's an event? You know, is it a party that I'm going to tonight? What is it? Like event, what does that say? Seizure actually says something. And I always like to talk to patients about this because I want to call it what they want to call it. And I did that as an epileptologist. You know, what do you call these? You call these your absentee seizures? Do you mean absence seizures? And they say, no, absentee seizure. I'm like, I'm not going to rename it. I want them to be comfortable with what they are calling it. And so I can tell you that most patients want to continue calling it seizures because they didn't wake up that morning and decide to go to a birthday party or have an event that day. They're, they got seized by the event, by the thing. 
So we continue to call it non-epileptic seizures until we have a better term. If you look at the UK literature, you'll see that they're calling them dissociative seizures, which is, I think, gets way closer to what is happening to a patient. So we're moving in the direction of rightly naming these things. But in answer to Jamie's question, um, a non-epileptic seizure is a outward expression of what looks like an epileptic seizure without the EEG correlate. So that has to be qualified too, because as an epileptologist, I can tell you have to have a certain amount of activity in a seizure for an EEG to record it. It's not 100% sensitive. But most people with non-epileptic seizures will have at the very least loss of consciousness or altered awareness. And if you see a stone cold normal EEG in that scenario, then you know that you don't have the, the seizure EEG correlate on the EEG. So at that point in time, you can say, well, this is this thing that I just said, an outward expression of something that is not giving me a correlate on the EEG. And I always tell patients because they want to know, well, why did the why did the neurologist tell me there was nothing on my EEG? And <laughs> it brings up another point. Patients hate that. They don't want to be you know, told that. And I mm -hmm. there was plenty on your EEG. Let me show you. And so we bring it up and I show them eye blink artifact. I show them muscle artifact. I show them movement artifact. I show them what we see on the EEG. And then I explain that I don't see um, what we would expect to see with a seizure, which would be, you know, a rhythmic pattern that starts in one part or can start in many parts and then kind of builds in amplitude and frequency and then slows down and is followed by, you know, a flattening of the EEG. That's the classic, but, you know, some variation of that. And, you know, I always tell patients, well, if I want to know how tall you are, I don't put you on a scale. That would tell me how much you weigh. And so, you know, if I want to know if you have non-epileptic seizures, the best I can do now is tell you you don't have epileptic seizures mm. because I'm using an EEG to measure it. And that does not measure what's happening to the person when they're having a non-epileptic seizures. So the big answer to your question, Jamie, is we don't 100% know, but there's a lot of biomarkers and other studies to suggest that we can at least look at correlating factors and start to get a clue of exactly what's happening and going wrong with brain circuitry to cause this. Mm -hmm. uh, and can you talk about some of those other correlating factors and some other clinical signs that can help you distinguish between non-epileptic seizures and ep mm -hmm. epilepsy? Mm -hmm. Well, most of those studies at this point are, you know, case series. They're, they're not quite in the, um, you know, randomized controlled clinical trial realm at this point, but mm -hmm. involves things like cortisol levels things like heart rate variability, um, things like sweat testing, things like, well, I mean, I think the famous thing that a lot of emergency doctors want to use is prolactin levels. So like the magic kind of level, if you get it and it's not, it's negative, then the person's not having an epileptic seizure. But there are so many things that can interfere with that assay that that's really a poor um, measure. I think the more exciting things that are happening, Jamie, are the... Um, are the functional imaging studies. But when you over and over again, look at, at psychopathology, specifically dissociation and post-traumatic stress disorder, and you notice similarities in those kinds of functional imaging studies to the imaging studies that are done on non-epileptic seizure patients, it's too close to say that there's nothing going on. 
So those are the most exciting things that are happening right now. And, you know, I hope I'm around long enough to, you know, see that to come to fruition. And can I jump in and ask you, Dr. Strom, about those or on the, uh, cause I, I thought the, the research in fMRI is, is super fascinating and uh, specifically what they're seeing on the functional MRI I've heard is just um, sort of like a, uh, like lack of connection between different uh, parts of the brain or the parts of the brain that you would think would be um, lighting up aren't necessarily lighting up in the same ways. That's a great, that's a great way to put it. So I, th- I think that one of the studies that's really exciting is that there's overconnection between the amygdala and the motor planning region. And I have some references later that you can post on your podcast if you like. Um, and then there, and then Vanderkalk really talks about, you know, the, the executive part of the brain um, that takes a little bit longer to respond to a situation, not being as connected as you alluded to um, in your question. Mm-hmm. These kinds of, and and again, I'm not suggesting that this is what caught, like these connections or lack of connection or what caused, you know, the the problem. But if you look at the same thing and it comes up over and over again, as hyperconnected in one place and not as connected in another, Mm -hmm. you have to at least wonder if that's at least the circuit that's allowing the um, motor manifestation of somebody's non-epileptic seizure. You know, I don't, I don't know that that's true because we just don't have enough information, but there's more to come on that. There are people actively um, working on this um, right now. And, uh, you know, hide and watch. We're going to have studies that show us that uh, there definitely are uh, similar patterns. I mean, just to pull back for a minute, if you, if you look at my data, and I've taken care of like something like 800 patients at this point, which is a pretty good end. Um, the, tr- the level of trauma in these people is in the 95% range. Wow. Uh, so I always want to come to the table when somebody is feeling funny about non-epileptic seizures and say, you are taking care almost 95% of the time with a traumatized individual. And so you have to approach this individual with care because, Traumatized individuals, like you said at the beginning, are prone to be re-traumatized. They don't trust. Mm-hmm. They don't because they've been traumatized. So yeah. anyway, that's the long answer to your short question. <laughs> Those are the best kinds of answers. Um, so kind of building off of that, since you mentioned trauma and you mentioned such a high rate of having patients who have experienced trauma. Um, what other elements of the patient history can help point towards a diagnosis of non-epileptic seizures or are usually uh, present? I think if you look at Wesley Kerr's work, he's done a really exciting job of looking at what's what he calls a predictive calculator. It's a dissociative seizure score that he assigns people. And surprisingly, because he looked at 76 different factors in the initial work that he did, like what is going to tell you, what's going to lead you to say, you know, oh, they had a non-epileptic seizure versus an epileptic seizure. And I think in your case, in your case story, you talked about tongue biting and urinary incontinence. And if you look at some of the really dedicated literature on that topic, that's actually doesn't help. (laughs) So I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a question that we are taught in residency to ask, you know, so nobody, doing anything wrong. They're, they're doing what they were told to do. 
But the real, the real question that I would ask is questions about the amplitude and direction of movement. You know, because I've looked at so many non-epileptic seizures, and I can tell you that those two things don't vary much in an epileptic seizure, but they often vary with a higher sensitivity than urinary incontinence and tongue biting, uh, non-epileptic seizures. And also eye closure is another one. But more to the point, the history that we take is really going to lead us. And if you look at the calculator, and I can give you a link for that, um, it's really things like what is the seizure associated with? Does the person have migraines? Does the person have asthma? Does the person have, is the person on a lot of medications or only a couple medications? You know, how many comorbidities do they have? How long has it been since they, you know, um, have had this diagnosis and is it refractory? So um, I think that the answer to the question is really complex. Uh, but the more you get a good social history that leads you to understand if the person has had trauma or depression or suicide attempts or any of those things is going to, is going to heighten your sense of maybe there's something else going on here. And I have to tell you, I always hesitate to say these things because I don't want people to like put folks in a box because they have a psychiatric disorder. And that's a slippery slope. We have to be careful. Um, but, you know, ask, asking the right kinds of um, questions about how many meds and how long they've been ha having the diagnosis, what other comorbid um, physical diagnoses do they have? Uh, the CUR model that uh, calculator is really an elegant little tool that can work adjunctively to help you, you know, figure out, is there something else going on here? Absolutely. And I'll make sure to, to put a, a link to that in our, our show notes uh, for anyone who's interested. I'm sure Wesley would not mind. Can you talk about some of those other comorbidities that show up frequently? Yeah. So in our work, um, PTSD is like full-blown qualify for the diagnosis PTSD is about 63% of our population. So not only are they exposed to trauma, 63% of them have PTSD, and that is not the background figure. Uh, depression is in also in the 60% range. Anxiety is higher. Generalized anxiety disorder is very high. It's in the, I want to say, 70 to 80% range in our data. Those are, those are the kind of the top three. Um, recently, um, one, of the, one of the residents is doing a really deeper dive into that, Jamie, and um, finding out that our percentage of suicidal ideation and suicide attempts does not mirror you know, the background um, of those two entities in, in um, the general population. We're up above the 30% range, and our suicide attempt rate is almost as high as the suicidal ideation rate. Um, that gives us a lot of questions about the data. We have to we have to dig into it deeper and make sure that we're collecting it in the most consistent way. I believe we are. Um, but I think that um, paying attention to that is extremely important. There was an article that came out very recently about the death rate in people with non-epileptic seizures, and it is not zero. Yeah, wow. That, that's pretty um, sobering. Yeah, that's a good word. I was, I was searching yeah. for a word, but that's a, that's a really good word. And so given that this is such a 
a sensitive diagnosis to make. And you were talking earlier about how your, your talk was famous. Can you walk us through how you would discuss the diagnosis of non-epileptic seizures with the patient? Yeah. So um, I, I, I'm in an interesting situation because I'm, I, this is all I do now. I talk to every single one of the patients who comes through the clinic. And the first thing I do is I ask them to tell me about their seizures. You know, I just start there. Tell me about your seizures. Um, and, and I get all of the history that I would get if I was seeing them for the first time. Like I, and I didn't know that they had non-epileptic seizures because people need to talk about it. They need to call it what they want to call it. They need to know that they didn't do it on purpose and they need to talk about it. They need to tell you what it's like. And there's two reasons for that. One is to honor where the patient is. And the other is to make sure that I've actually captured what they're telling me about. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I want to reassure you that the EEG is a very good tool for this. Our um, error rate is low, but it is not zero. And so when people tell me about a seizure, I say, okay, well, let's look at it now. And so we pull out the EEG and I always ask their permission to show it to them because it's very upsetting to some people. Um, Most, I will tell you, most patients want to look at it. And so we look at it together and it's, it's really interesting to me because sometimes it will look kind of what we call in epilepsy kind of bland, you know, to me, to the onlooker, I'll think, well, that looks like what I would call a bland seizure. You know, there's not a lot of movement, but the patients are are in the grips of it when they're watching it. Um, and I, I don't know how to explain that, except that it looks different to them than it does to me. So I, I let them react to it. And then we talk about how did we do? You know, did we get what, what we needed to get? And the most common response is, well, yes, but it's not quite as severe as what I'm having at home. That is probably 50% of the time patients tell me that. Mm-hmm. Pull out a picture of a, of a brain and I tell them how much brain I need involved to convince me that it's would give me a pattern on the EEG if it were an epileptic seizure. And the answer to that is 100% of the time almost. Um, and then I say, you know, I, I hear what you're saying that when you're at home, these are longer, harder, but they still, the way you describe them, um, cover the same amount of cortex. And so even though this one is slightly, you know, less dramatic, it still would have shown up on the EEG if it had been an epileptic seizure. And I, I used variations on that talk and it seems to really, like, I don't think patients have heard it before because they always ask me questions about it and they go, well, what do you mean by that? And I get a little technical. And I think that um, I basically pull the EEG apart for them and show them. I show them that there's not a field effect on the, the stuff that I'm seeing on the EEG. So I, you know, I was taught this by my, one of my mentors at University of Colorado, Dr. Mark Spitz. He said, you know, bowl them over with the science because, and he was right. And I, I really believe that, that patients will respond to that and they'll say, okay. And if you look up a somatization article or you know chapter in uh, Kaplan and Sadoc, you'll see that I'm right about this. From the neurologist's point of view, it's the right thing to do. 
from the therapist's point of view, it's it's not exactly what we should be doing. Um, but that's really where I go. And then I ask them a lot of questions about, um, I, do a, I do a very extensive social history at that point. So I start with what are your seizures like? I show them their seizures. We talk about how the EEG tells me what I need to know. And then we dive into the rest of the, the rest of their history. And by then, you know, I'm getting information from them that's extremely um, eye-opening. That's a fascinating uh, approach, too. And it definitely makes sense that sort of having that, that raw scientific data in front of them, it almost changes the dynamic that you're going to in initially, where I think what can be the situation sometimes for me is that you kind of come in with there's a defensiveness or there's a sort of a hesitancy about, you know, us as clinicians, not wanting to share this diagnosis, which could be troubling. The patients are kind of confused as what's going on. And it, it definitely makes sense. that sort of in sharing just kind of objective scientific data. It, it allows you almost like a common ground to start the discussion and show that you're taking them seriously. You're an expert in sort of this area and you're kind of hearing everything that they're saying. So yeah, that's exactly right, Dr. Holloman. And I think starting with tell me about your seizures is really imperative. Um, I will say that there is one other thing I, I often, well, I always start with, I always ask them, what do you know about non-epileptic seizures? Because people know all kinds of incorrect information. And so I, I want to I wanna be able to frame my approach by understanding how informed they are or how ill-informed they are. So that's part of, part of what I also talk to them about. What are some of those misconceptions that people have? Well, they're faking it. That's the big one. So we always say we don't use the F word in here. And, and none assumed. You know, it's just, it's a, that's a different diagnosis. That's malingering or factitious or it's something else. It's not non-epileptic seizures, not a conversion disorder. Um, so that's one of the biggest uh, misconceptions. And the other, the other thing that I think people have a hard time saying, but they believe, is that they believe they're doing it on purpose. And I, I'm, I'm of a couple of minds with that. You know, did somebody just tell them that and they'd somehow own it now? Or do they suspect it? Or um, did they read it online? Did they, you know, who knows? Um, there's a couple of other, those are the most common, but there are a couple of other things that I'm hearing more lately. And a lot of people are, they want to call it, um, this is my Lyme disease, or this is my POTS disease, or this is my, you know, my other inflammatory disease that's now giving me all of these medically unexplained symptoms that you, Dr. Strong, just didn't get right. So there's a lot of that going on too. And you have to be really gentle with these people. You have to give them space to explore what they think they know is true because you got to meet a person where they are. If they have a belief system, you can't just dismantle it. You just can't do that. You have to, you have to meet them where they are. And so hearing about the misconceptions is almost as important as any other aspect of this. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, so once you have that diagnosis, let's talk about um, what does treatment for these disorders look like? Yeah, well, I think the, um, uh, if you look at the literature, the treatment is what Dr. LaFrance called cognitive behavior informed therapy. Okay. And I think the, the move now is to refer to it as neurobehavioral therapy. 
So it's a very mixed kind of approach to patients, but it uses a lot of cognitive behavioral um, treatments. And I'm going to remind you, I'm not a psychiatrist. (laughs) I only played one for a year in intern. Um, And, you know, that makes me dangerous probably. But um, the cognitive behavioral styles of therapy, mindfulness therapy, self-observation, thought records, Um, You know, treating underlying psychiatric illness, super important. So having a partner, if you're a neurologist treating this um, with a psychiatrist who can, you know, make sure that the patient's, you know, adequately treated for their depression or anxiety or PTSD, which is, as I said, you know, three of the most common um, comorbid problems that these patients have. Um, So making sure those things are treated And then recognizing that um, Rome was not built in a day. This is not just going to, as you may have read in one particular journal article, go away just by giving them the right diagnosis. Um, That maybe happens sometimes, but in my experience, it is not a common scenario for somebody to just get better because you told them what they have. And then, uh, so actually... um... I saw that you recently published a paper about multidisciplinary group therapy for treatment of non-epileptic seizures. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about the ways in which um, therapy in a group setting can help? So um, I'll just preface it again with saying I'm not a psychiatrist, but I can tell you that my psychiatry partners are very, very much in favor of the group model. We do a fair amount of one-on-one as well, just as was described in LaFrance's work. Um, we, we believe that just like epilepsy, this is an extremely isolating illness. People feel ashamed and that's very common in trauma victims. They feel ashamed. Um, and this brings it out of the, it brings it out of the hidden aspect of the, the problem. It's no longer fake or pseudo or any of the other dreadful things that people call non-epileptic seizures and group normalizes it. I always tell people, it's not normal to have a seizure, okay? We're not saying that's normal, but it's not normal to hide it either. You know, it's a disease process just like any other. And so when people see other people having seizures, it gives them a sense of, it's a weird word to use maybe, but community. Like, If you go online and Facebook and any of these places, there's a bajillion of these groups for people who have this problem because they crave community. They crave Mm -hmm. when they're not by themselves. So that's that's one of the key features. Um, We also feel as though, and the psychiatrists say this, that people learn from one another. I mean, it's a, a paradigm in psychiatry that you don't have the answer for the patient. The patient has their own answer. And oftentimes if they hear an answer or hear something from another patient, it makes more, it means more to them than than if the doctor says it. So there's that kind of, you know, uh, interaction dynamic that is in a group that is really um, helpful. And then I'm going to walk over to the CD side of medicine and tell you that it's actually really efficient. Mm. Because if you think of University of Colorado, we have a 12 bed unit we have uh, 25 to sometimes 40% of patients in the EMU at any given time are being diagnosed with non-epileptic seizures. So I have a lot of patients and I'm the only game in town right now. I'm sorry to say, although there are a couple of private practitioners who do see 
patients and we are building a network. Um, I have a lot of referrals from other epilepsy units in the, in the region. So if I tried to do chronic care in a patient with non-epileptic seizures, I would be not doing very many cases. I just wouldn't. So the group model um, is financially efficient. And, and I think that journal article will show you, you know, we, we created a, a basically a calculator to look at the contribution margin of, um, you know, what is it, what does it get you, um, like almost like a number needed to treat sort of way of looking at it to take care of an epilepsy patient in the monitoring unit versus taking care of a non-epileptic patient in the monitoring unit, because these people go back over and over and over again, as well as going to the emergency department, because no one's giving them any answers. And the answer to that question is you're going to have a much higher efficiency taking care of epilepsy patients in an epilepsy monitoring unit. And you'll do a better job and actually give people what they need if you're taking care of them in my clinic. And the only way I could think of to do it, um, and I modeled this with our Institute for Quality, Safety, um, and Efficiency in Healthcare at the university, was to do it in a group model. And that was, that was a pretty careful financial decision and a sustainability um, decision as well as, you know, more practical concerns about what the patient needs. And to follow up on that, uh, something we, we also chatted about in the pre-interview is just sort of the lack of, of treatment for patients with non-epileptic seizures and how I think your situation where you're kind of the only game in town is, is probably similar to probably most academic institutions and definitely I would say most community hospitals. Do you envision this, this group model as something that would potentially be applicable to a lot of centers? Pat, I'm so glad you asked that. That's a great question, too. Um, have you heard of Project Echo? No. Familiar with that? Um, I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna slaughter the acronym, but it basically is looks at a community virtual model for you know teaching people you know, standard of care. It started in Santa Fe with, a, I think, a cardiologist or a primary care doctor who wanted to treat hypertension better, something like that, and realized that people were all over the map. This was many years ago. And he started this forum where docs could sort of in a safe way come and say, well, what's the latest and greatest thing here? How do we, you know, what's the best way to treat? Do we start with a beta blocker? Do we start with an ACE inhibitor? Where do we go? Mm-hmm. And the project has just taken off from there. And we're right now looking at um, a couple of things. One, we worked with the Epilepsy Foundation. They started what they called a preferred provider network because we told them we can't get providers to see these patients. Mm. Can't. And as you might know, 10 to 15% of people with epilepsy also have non-epileptic seizures. So the mission of EFA is to take care of people with epilepsy, but they also recognize that they, they can't do one without doing some of the other. So that started our thinking about, you know, we can help providers get more comfortable. And so we started doing, um, you know, lunch and learns and chats and and discussions with them. And back in the pre-COVID days, we did it in person. And we had to turn on a dime with, you know, with COVID and and the risks. And now everything is virtual. Um, Here we are talking about the United States virtually. I mean, it's it's actually something we're never going to go back to. Yeah. You know, in-person meetings again, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. But the, th- the thing that's exciting is that we are um, starting a project now where we're going to do a case, just like we did here, a case-based um, 
uh, forum where docs can and other providers can come in and we're hoping mainly ultimately um, people with um, who are behavioral health experts can come in and say, I have this, you know, just like this case, this person is having seizures, but oh, by the way, they also feel weak and they were in a car accident and hurt their neck. So doc, what do I do about that? Do I, is the EMG convincing enough? Is that, you know, is that where I, do I need to stop there? Do I need to not worry about that? Should I consider that another functional aspect of this person's, you know, disease process? And so using case-based um, um, forums with providers and letting people air what they're concerned about, and then using that as a way to, you know, teach and to disseminate, because that's what we need to do is dissemination. Yeah. So, um my next question is following up a bit on talking about treatment. Um, when you're talking about treatment and psychological interventions with some of these patients who maybe deny symptoms of a traditional mood disorder, how do you approach that? Who deny those symptoms? Well, who, who say like they don't have depression or anxiety, they don't need like psychological treatment. How would you talk to them about being involved in one of these multidisciplinary group therapy groups or something like that. Mm. Oh, so Jamie, that's a great question too. Um, you know, we, we've got a subset of patients who are hard to treat, you know, because they just aren't, they're not ready to really accept what's going on. And it's kind of crucial. Um, I don't know if it's the be all end all, you know, of what we need to know about these people, but they have to be in a place any, any person who's getting psychiatric treatment has to be in a place where they recognize that they need it. You know, and that's, that's for sure. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other questions that you have to ask them. And, you know, I think traditionally we think of, well, do they just want disability, which is another blame the patient kind of game. Um, so there's, there's a whole bunch of things I think that influence people's ability to get well. Um, when we have patients who say, well, I, I'm not depressed. I'm not stressed. I always ask them, well, what did the doctor who gave you the diagnosis tell you? Okay. And so I like to start there. I'm like, just walk me through it. Like when they came in the room and they say, Mr. Jones, you have non-epileptic seizures. What did they say next? You know, tell me exactly what you heard. And I know that what they heard is not exactly what was said because people are feeding everything that they hear through their own consciousness and, you know, six weeks later or two weeks later or a day later, it's going to be like a game of telephone. It's going to be a different story. Um, but the themes are usually the same. And I think that a lot of times doctors will say, well, we think this is stress. And I can tell you that more than 50% of the patients will say, I am not stressed. You know, and I learned that the hard way as an neurologist going into the EMU and talking to my patients about their stress. Um, so I always, you know, say, well, tell me a little bit about your day. Tell me a little bit about your home life, just to try to get that social history so that I can see where they are coming from. And then kind of feeding it back to them. You know, Mr. Jones, it sounds like, you know, your daughter is now addicted to drugs and dropped out of college and, you know, I can see that you're really dealing with that. Well, you're getting her the help she needs. Just kind of feed back to them what they're telling me. And most of the time, they're going to get to a place where they recognize that there might be some stuff going on that they need to talk about. 
That's part of it. The other part is I don't fight with them. If somebody isn't ready, I say, well, listen, let's get some more evaluation. I'd like you to see my friend, Dr. Libin, who's our, our psychiatrist or our licensed clinical social worker, just to make sure that we're looking at your whole person, like who you are all together. And then we can get together and in a shared decision-making pattern, decide what you feel like would be the next best step for you. And if that is you would like to not be in treatment, then, you know, that's where we'll go. And we will leave it in your court to get back to us if you change your mind. And I'll tell you, um, now that I've been doing this for four years solid, we're getting a lot of people coming back and saying, I'm ready now. I've had enough. So I think that approach is kind. And I think it honors where the patient is. Like I said, you need to be where they are. And it also, you know, it also doesn't waste their time. If they're not ready, then that's a waste of their time and, and their insurance money. And it's also, you know, I think in a group model can really be harmful to the group if you've got people in there who really don't want to be there. So, so we, try to, we try to take a really broad view of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess kind of on the flip side of that, what sorts of things do you recommend when a patient might want to uh, seek mental health treatment but are unable to access a mental health provider? Okay, so people who can't access the, the treatment, um, I'll tell you, I think, a disclaimer that I have funding for my clinic. That's number one. Number two, I'll also tell you that 60% of my patients have Medicaid. So that's a surrogate marker for people who don't have any money. And Medicaid pays for this treatment. So, you know, that that's that's another kind of ray of hope on the horizon that so, so we, um, we've gotten a lot of help. That's one thing. And that's made us really lucky. And then the other thing is that our partners in the institution understand that if we can help these people get what they need, then we can increase access for epileptic patients. And if we can do that, then the epilepsy monitoring unit is going to hum. They're going to have surgery cases. They're going to be, you know, doing the kinds of things that doctors can charge for and get paid for in a way that really makes it feasible to actually have an epilepsy monitoring unit um, by taking these people and giving them what they actually need, which is psychiatric care. So, um, so not lucky, that's one thing, but the model also makes sense. And what we're doing now is working on how do we uh, sustain this? you know, without like outright having the hospital pay for the psychiatrist that we use, which is what's happening now. So, um, you know, that's really one of the next steps that we're taking is how do we increase volume without making ourselves go crazy with all the work we have um, and capitalize on volume uh, to make up for the fact that this is not the best remunerated kind of care that we give. So it's a complicated question and a complicated answer, but I'm hopeful that we're getting there. Yeah. And I think that speaks to your approaching it from a systemic level, um, sort of addressing the need just for, for better fundamental treatment for these patients and um, to kind of break it down, at least from, from my perspective, if, if you have any thoughts and sadly the answer might be, you know, there's, there's not much you can do, but 
um, say um, I'm in a situation which I typically find myself in in the resident clinic where I'll see a patient diagnosed with non-epileptic seizures. They'll come to me. I'll sort of do education and, and sort of talk them through their diagnosis. And um, unfortunately, you know, our uh, clinic patient population is similar to yours you're treating, Dr. Strom, Medicaid or uninsured primarily. And I, I think not only just for uh, non-epileptic seizures, but kind of, I think, mental health in general is just incredibly tough to get the, that patient population into. And so there's sort of a couple of um, uh, psychological services in the St. Louis area that will maybe give patients a little bit of a discounted rate, but even that might be sometimes cross prohibitive for a lot of my patients. And so I'm in this tough situation of saying, okay, I really want to help these people. I just, I, it really seems like I have no options mm-hmm. in that case. Is there like a resource to point the patients to? Mm-hmm. Should I be trying to do what little I can in, in our uh, clinic visit to try to help them? Mm-hmm. Um, any thoughts on, on, you know, what someone like myself could do? Uh, that's also a really great question. I think, you know, it goes to what I said first is that it was a terrible place to be as a physician, like giving somebody a diagnosis and not being able to help them and then, you know, making them fend for themselves. So I just want to, you know, I want to commend your humanity in that way. It, it, it's really, it is a terrible place to be. I, if you look at the International League Against Epilepsy Task Force on Non-Epileptic Seizures, They've done a couple of things. One is the Canadian version of that did a, um, and they have a national health system, so they did a darn good job of it. They actually polled all of the neurologists that they could in um, Canada, and it was a large number, and found out that more than 50% of them are taking care of the patients themselves for that very reason. Mm. You know, and and the, the big issue is that we don't have parity with mental health care and physical health care. You know, somehow one is this, the wicked stepsister, or, you know, who knows, or the unwanted uh, weed in the garden, you know. So, I mean, it's, it's a systemic problem. So my feeling is this. Um, I think that your instinct that maybe you should be doing something is in this situation probably, you know, correct. And that you're, you're in good company because more than 50% of neurologists actually do make that decision and they keep seeing the patient. And then it would behoove you to, because you've made that decision or if you've made that decision to sort of get yourself some training and say, well, how do I take care of these people? You know, so that, that's a big ask. There's not a lot of neurologists who would say, oh, sure, I'm going to, you know, be the psychiatrist today. <laughs> <laughs> Or, you know, the seizure counselor, however you want to frame it. Um, so it, it is a big ask. But I can tell you that a lot of, a lot of neurologists do exactly that. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think that my model is not, it, it is not unable to be replicated. Yeah. Double negative. Yeah, fantastic answer to a, to a complex problem. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and a bit on the topic of finding providers uh, who take a patient's insurance, it was really encouraging to hear that Medicaid covers this, but for your patients who aren't on Medicaid, um, are there added challenges related to insurance coverage if the patient is switched from a diagnosis of epilepsy to a diagnosis of non-epileptic seizures? Yeah. Um, yes, unfortunately. In fact, I just got a call from a patient this morning saying, I don't think I can see you anymore because the insurance won't pay for it. So, mm. I mean, I, I build a medical diagnosis, 
because I'm not a psychiatrist. I can't build a behavioral health code. I can't. So um, now I have to go back to my documentation and make sure that I didn't screw that up somehow. Um, But but yes, the answer to the question is that um, a lot of commercial insurance will give you sort of a cap on on treatment of behavioral health uh, disease, which is... Mm. It's really hard for me to understand, but anyway. Um, and when it happens, what we do often is we work pretty hard to get them to reverse their position. Um, I do peer-to-peer uh, conversations, and you'll learn more about this than you ever wanted to know once you graduate and become a doctor. Um, you, you basically have to argue with the insurance company. And you have to show them the literature. It's it's just like anything that I have to, you know, that they argue with me about. I want another, you know, MRI on someone. They say, well, Dr. Strom, you just had one a year ago. And I say, well, this person has, you know, a brain tumor. And so I need to get an MRI because and then I give them chapter and verse and explain it to them. It's really no different with this. You know, they've got a, they've got a behavioral health problem and I'm billing medical code. Um, I say they've got seizures. They've got convulsions, NOS. Um, I don't. I don't give them a behavioral health code because that's not. That's not how I'm trained, um, and so it's a little bit easier for me. Um, in terms of our um, team, we we are giving a total of about 21 sessions to our patients the first six of which are done by the neurology team, our advanced practice partners. We have a couple of um, PAs and a nurse practitioner and they bill medical codes as well. But we haven't really had, and we've had the coders and the um, billers analyze this for us, have not had as much trouble as we expected with this. And I should find some wood to knock on, but... (laughs) (laughs) I um so far so good and that's been for several years. So we are we do seem to be able to do this um to some extent and maybe I should be more curious about how we've been getting away with it. <laughs> well, it's encouraging to hear uh, at any yeah. rate having less problems than expected. And then so aside from the insurance and financial side of things, what are some other barriers to treatment that patients experience? Yeah. I think that there's a couple of um, big ones. Uh, one is that ours is a very cognitive treatment. Mm-hmm. And people cognitively are not in a place where they can take advantage of that. That presents a big problem. Mm-hmm. If they have a lot of mixed symptoms, sometimes they don't really buy into, oh, I've got non-epileptic seizures. Like your case, I'm actually, you know, I was in an accident, I hurt my neck and now I'm weak. You know, so they don't sort of buy into it. That's that's another issue. And um, the other the other big set of people we've already talked about is people, you know, who just don't want treatment. They don't think they have depression. They don't think they have a psychiatric illness. They don't like it. There's one other group of people who have a really hard time with our treatment. And that is people who get very triggered by it. Like they're mm. almost too sick for our treatment. Okay. Mm-hmm. So... Think of this population, they're very traumatized. They come into a group, they see other traumatized individuals, they hear stories. I mean, people come into group treatment and they talk about what's happened to them. And so we've got other patients who just really sort of 
you know, get completely disorganized with the treatment because it's too traumatic. It's re-traumatizing for them. So we have to pull back with those people and we have to give them other um, options um, really, you know, one-on-one until they get to a more stable place and then can come back and get, you know, the treatment that we're offering in some cases, or if the one-on-one treatment works for them, then that's what they end up doing. And that, that is, you know, that is not a small number of people. Yeah. And uh, you made me think of, I um, diagnosed a patient last week on the general neurology service with non-epileptic seizures. And um, we were talking and, and things were going well. And, and sort of, we talked about some potential treatment options, one of them um, being like a sort of neurobehavioral therapy. And the, the patient said exactly what you just mentioned. I don't, I don't want to go through that again. I don't want to relive that trauma. You know, it's just too painful for me to do. Um, mm-hmm. Is there any other ways we can treat it? And and we said, yeah, of course. And, and sort of, we thought more about maybe sort of think about stressors and other things uh, and sort of uh, kind of reframing things to, to the point where maybe sometime in the future they would be, but it mm-hmm. definitely highlighted for me the fact that that's definitely a, a subgroup of these patients who it's, it's almost too painful to, to start the treatment process. Yeah. Jameson, uh, Bessel van der Kolk did a study. It was an NIH study that actually showed that yoga it's about the best treatment you can give people for PTSD. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's why he calls it the body keeps the score. Oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. He, he talks about, you know, what do the, what do Eastern people do? They don't turn to drugs and alcohol. They turn to yoga. Mm. They know that when something gut wrenching has happened to them, they don't need to take an antacid. They mm. need to sit quietly and breathe and, you know, let the acid go away. Yeah. You know, so that's incredibly helpful reminder just, just for myself to, to, to think about. And so when you were talking about that group of patients that it maybe isn't really buying into it, or maybe has sort of a low engagement with treatment, um, how can physicians help increase patient engagement with treatment? Oh, that is the million dollar <laughs> question. Yep. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest with you. I have no idea. I mean, I, I have a little bit of a clue, you know, it's transportation, it's cost, it's being ashamed of the diagnosis. It's, it's about lack of family support. It's about trauma, 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 you know, it's about all of these things, but nothing has like, I I don't have a, a magic bullet answer to that question that says, Oh, obviously if I just do X, and 100% of the patients will come. I can tell you that 10% of my patients more are coming now that we have virtual. So that is pretty telling to me that the transportation issue, you know, um, is definitely part of the, you know, part of it. That sounds, that's, yeah, and definitely makes a lot of sense. And, and yeah, if, it, if you do have those, those ongoing uh, research studies and do come up with an answer, we would, we would love on behalf of the medical community to, to hear it. And, I think a good question to to end on would be um, maybe if if you had a personal experience with a, a particularly resonant success story of non-epileptic seizures, a sort of patient who took proactive steps um, to to help themselves and sort of get treatment and is doing well, and and maybe giving us a little insight into what that looks like. Well, I have a a patient right now who is um, she's actually she's quite ill, and um, she's um, she's gone through treatment and she is still in chronic treatment. And 
she has basically, she hasn't started a nonprofit, but I hide and watch. <laughs> She's going to create one. She's on a mission to educate physicians about this disease. And I mean, I, I part of me is celebrates, you know, this, like you, you have no idea how exciting it is to watch a patient, you know, get a grip like that and say, I want to change the mm. world. And um, I just, I'm so impressed. Uh, it's, it's just, she's amazing. She's amazing. incredibly inspirational. And it gives me an opportunity to, to work in a, a quote that I found in, in your bio when I was researching your background a little bit, which I loved, which is a uh, Ernest Hemingway quote from a, a farewell to arms where he says, the world breaks everyone. And afterwards, many are strong at the broken places. And this patient kind of epitomized that. And, uh, um, and I can definitely see that same philosophy sort of echoing through everything that you're saying, Dr. Strom. And uh, so, so thanks so much for, for chatting with us. It's, it's truly ins- inspirational to hear your work. And I hope it continues because this is, is something we've hit on a lot of points, a huge public need to get better treatment for these yeah. patients. And so, so thanks so much. Well, I, I just want to tell you, too, that I'm so impressed that you wanted to do a podcast about functional neurological disorders. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, it's not something that people jump up and down and go, yay, let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so good on you. And you, young Dr. Maffa, <laughs> come and talk to me since you're interested in this. Absolutely. That concludes my interview. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to my podcast, liking me on Facebook, following me on Instagram at Brainboy Neurology, or on Twitter at Brainboy Neuro. And as always, feel free to pass along any comments or suggestions. The opinions expressed on this show are those of Brainboy Neurology and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of the places of employment of the Brainboy Neurology staff. The opinions expressed on this podcast are meant for entertainment and education and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified, board-certified practicing clinician.